This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we look back at the Monocle Quality of Life conference, which wrapped up in Munich at the weekend. We hear from award-winning Mexican architect Manuel Cervantes, talk branding, typography and graphic design with Aurelia Roche, plus we take a spin in a compact new car by Microlino. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Hello and welcome to today's show where we are revisiting the recent Monocle Quality of Life conference in Munich. The event, held annually in different cities, is a chance to bring together some of the best thinkers and doers who are actively designing a better world. 2023's edition in the Allianz Auditorium in the Bavarian capital saw speakers present to an audience of 150 people from across the globe. Thankfully, for those of you who weren't in that number, the Monocle Radio team were on hand to record the conversations on stage. This includes a chat I had with Mexico City-based architect Manuel Cervantes. I began our conversation by loosely explaining the link between architecture and quality of life, before Manuel provided his definition and talked us through seven of his projects. If you're looking at, I guess, architecture as as the setting or the stage where our, our life takes place... If that's a quality setting or stage, I think quality of life automatically becomes enhanced. But I, I guess what I want to unpack with you and what we've, we've talked about off air or off stage is the, the process of, of getting there and, and the conversations that take place around architecture to, I guess, help deliver that quality of life. We've got seven of your projects that we're going to talk through. I mean, maybe to set us up before we dive in, into the first of the projects, what does quality of life mean to you? And I guess, how do, how do we start to get there as, or how do you start to get there as an architect for you and, you and your clients? Well, quality of life, it's like a philosophical question. It depends how you measure quality of life. And I think that's very relevant because normally we, we try or we think that quality of life, it's, it's about money. And uh, in reality, quality of life, it's, it's uh, what can people with freedom can do in life, no? And as an architect, I think that when, when you try to design something in terms of quality of life, it's very, very important to really understand that there is a huge difference between different places, different communities, different cultures, and different people, climate, etc. So, so we try to understand that quality of life on every single project, it's kind of different because we have different resources, different budgets, different countries, etc. Uh, we have been working in, in different parts of the world, and, and we try to imagine which is the best quality of life for, for those specific places. And I think that that's what I want to get into. How do you, how do you start to work out that, that quality of life for a specific place? What, what are the, the conversations that take place around that? Well, we, we try to use the word conversation as a method uh, not to impose nothing, no, to have, I try to say this at the office, we try to have com- internal conversations uh, with our clients, with the people that we collaborate with, uh, with the authorities that we work with, uh, let's say with all the key members of a project. And in those conversations, I think that it's relevant to really uh, have the, the right questions. Forget about the business per se, the performa, the, the numbers, and, and really think about 
the people that will have that quality of life. No, I think that if you design for, for the people, for the places, the quality of the architecture will, will be amazing because of the nature of the design. I mean, let's, let's start to dive into some of your projects where we can unpack this. I mean, tell us, tell us a little bit about this first one. It's a hydroponic plan. Explain, I guess, what went into those principles that we've just talked about there. What came out in this design? Well, we, we select seven different projects with you in order to see different typologies. No, this is, for an example, two, two office spaces. Before COVID, we were very, very pushy with clients to imagine that people can't be inside the spaces all the time. Like, like we were hearing uh, people need to move, people need to, to be outside to relate with, with the exterior, with the natural light, etc. So in a way, for office spaces, for places where we spend most of our time today, uh, for us, it's, it's very relevant to understand the quality of life in that matter. No, and again, every single company, every single project, it's kind of different. Uh, we try to push to avoid the generic idea of an office space. No, I think that, again, because of COVID, now we know that, that it's impossible to imagine the generic glass box as a, as a but you, you were sort of seeing, it's almost like you sound like you're on that security panel from earlier. You sort of knew that this pandemic was coming and that, that we were going to need to be outside. It, it, or, exactly. or you had this inherent awareness of that. Yeah, because at the end of the day, we are not discovering or proposing nothing new. We, we are always thinking on the rational part of, of the human being. Now, this is another project in another place. Uh, this is a whole building. And again, the, the public space, how building relates to the community, to the urban, to the city, it's, it's very important. No quality of life, it's not only about the people. The quality of life, it's also about the life of cities, of communities, a group of people. No? So, so for us, again, all these different conversations that we, we like to have with all the key decision makers, it's, it's about having the right questions again. And I think, I think conversation is an important word there. I mean, I, I find personally so many architects end up talking at. Like if I, if I think of my own experience, I'm a, I'm a landscape architect by trade. If I'm walking around a city with my girlfriend and I see a building I like, I almost instinctively start talking at her. Kind of a little bit like Ken in the Barbie movie when he plays guitar at Barbie. I tend to talk architecture at people. And I, I think we need to be having these conversations. So you're having them with your clients as well as with the city, as well as with, I mean, who else, who else are you bringing into the conversation when you're working on a project like this that's a whole building and, and very public facing? Well, it's not only people, no, the conversation. It's also about uh, intangible things like culture, like history, like heritage, uh, budgets. Uh, so all these conversations, again, help us to develop something that it's not uh, uh, an imposition, it's not a, a style. It's, let's say, a translation of, of the best way to do things for a specific place, for a specific group of people. When you say a building that I like or I don't like, I, I prefer to imagine that a building, it's better if, if if it's suitable for you, if it works for you, if it's related to, to a place more than if you like it or not. No? Again, I think that quality of life, it's about places that gives you the opportunity to celebrate life, not, not just a, an aesthetical thing. 
So if we're, if we're talking about celebration, we're moving into retail spaces now. Now we are at retail space. Uh, this is uh, our first retail project. We, we don't do retail spaces. Uh, but this was a nice conversation with a client that we were working with on a house. Uh, and the idea of exploring the boundaries between interior and exterior in a shopping center and how by giving some of, of this internal space to the outside and create let's say, like a, an urban idea inside, not an urban space, no, but uh, to, to, again, uh, have interesting conversations on how retail can explore different ways of, of being not only trendy, not only uh, fashionable, but also intelligent. I mean, I, I, I want to talk about this in terms of giving over space, outdoor space, to retail you know if, if i'm if i'm the owner of this shop i'm thinking no i need to have the biggest footprint possible to display as much as i can tastefully tastefully but display as much as i can uh, what sort of conversation do you have to have to shift that mindset well again it depends no this client was interested in the idea of of how you communicate with your clients no? how you embrace the activity of your client no i think that a retail store, it's not only a place where you sell things, no, it's also how do you send a message of, of the, the philosophy of your brand. So in this case, it was important to say, okay, for, for the brand, the client is important as a person, as a human being, because we are selling, in this case, a life, a style life, quality of life in a way. Uh, we're not only selling goods. So, so the conversation was about that, you know? and in this case, this particular, uh, particular case with James, it was not only the design of a store, it was uh, a work of, of other projects that were involved with him, and it was about uh, creating this kind of thinking. Talking about thinking, you mentioned celebration there. When, I, when you shared this project with me, I mean, firstly, I'd love to go and uh, stay here, so I don't know if you've got any discount codes or anything that you can... Uh, hook me up with, but I mean, you can you can say no now and email me later. Tell us about tell us about this sort of celebration that you're bringing into a, a, a hospitality space like this. This is a, a small part of a big a hospitality project. It's a it's a master plan of two hotels. One was designed by Rick Joy, and the other one it's under development. Uh, and we were invited to, in a way, translate our thoughts on on this region. This is in Mexico. It's a, it's a place called Mandarina. Uh, and for us, it was, let's say, important to, to establish a, a language, an idea on how to treat uh, our land. You know? In a way, that's, that's what I try to do when I go to other places. Right now, we're working, in, for an example, in Mykonos. And, and for me, it's like very important uh, for, for this project to... Not, not to say what to do, but to have this conversation with, with all the history that you have in Greece, uh, the site, the climate, the culture, the vernacular. So, so in a way, in this project, we were trying to, to say, okay, guys, you're bringing people from outside, you're creating or bringing brands from other countries. Let's, let's do something that, that it's site-specific and, uh, and it has a conversation with our culture, with our reality, with our materiality, 
and with a landscape, obviously. I mean, I'm curious, having a conversation with something intangible like culture, how do you, how do you begin to, to do that or, or unpack that? Like, it, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's pretty simple. I, I think that uh, all of us, we have internal conversations. You can have an internal conversation with your God, with your dead father, uh, but, and also with things that you don't, you don't have on hand. You know? I'm referring to the intangible as, as all of the things that you can't have on, on, a, on a table, but you can have in your mind. Uh, and in a way, it, it's, it's, it's how we try to relate to other things that we don't know or we don't have. No, I think that as an architect, the most important part, it's first to learn from a place, you know, to absorb, uh, to understand, and from there you can, in a way, translate to a contemporary feeling or, or vision. We'll, we'll go through these last two. So we're, we're finishing with some, some housing projects. I mean, again, it's all about conversations. What, what are you drawing into this? Is this, a very, is this the most personal project that you can do? I mean, well, this is a, another hospitality project in, in Mexico. And as you can see, the pictures, this is a restaurant, the one on the left. It was about a conversation, a real conversation. When you go to a restaurant, for me, it's about what is happening here. And then you start to imagine what's surrounding you. And that's, that's probably very logic, no? Uh, but when I talk about the conversation, in this case, it's, it's about the context. This, this beautiful forest, uh, so the wood was a natural selection to create a space that relates you to the outside. No? It, it smells like a forest. No? We, we change materiality between projects not because we are exploring or because we want, but because we want to relate to a place. So if you use stone, metal, concrete, or wood, for me, it, it's about that relationship with the place where you are. And now we're, we're doing this in, in the residential setting. It, it, now yeah. we, are, we are in a house, uh, let's say, more domestic, more introspective. And again, it's about uh, how you create conversation with a client. No, in this specific case, this is a house for a chef. So the kitchen was the epicenter of the house. Uh, a Mexican chef. So our culture, it's very, very... Uh, tangible in, in all the materiality, in all the elements. But again, how, how you design something from all this conversation, I think that it's, it's uh, very important. Uh, and, and going back a little bit to, to the hospitality, I think that it's also very relevant to, to imagine that we need to have human conversations. No? In the hospitality world, for us today, it's, it's pretty complex to work with these huge funds, with these huge companies that at the end of the day are, are making decisions from, from large groups uh, and you don't have any more personal contact with someone with a personal vision. Uh, and and we, we start to see that we are, in a way, creating bad conversations no? with, with companies, with Excel performance instead of with humans and human needs. And we're going we're gonna to wrap on this last project. I guess to, to frame this, quickly tell us about it. But then uh, we've got such a diverse range of delegates, but there are a lot of property developers here. Yeah. What sort of questions do they need to be asking architects? Like the person that's worked, you worked on with this project with, what sort of questions did they need to ask and what can others then ask? 
this is a, a, a nice project that we did for a big company. They were asking us to do something for the company, and we returned to them saying, okay, we don't want to do something for you as a company, we want to do something for the people of your company. Uh, you're extending your company, you're increasing the scale of your company, but you're not thinking on the people that work on this plantation. So this is a, a temporary housing project that works for the people that travels between other countries in South America to the United States in this immigration process. So the houses were intended to, to, to think on the people. To answer your question, I, I like to always think that when I'm with a, with a developer, with a, with a person making decisions, uh, it's relevant to have th these four questions. I was telling you this yesterday. You know? to, to whom we are designing for, what are we designing, uh, where are we designing this, what's going to be the impact for the future. You know? I think that this idea of the eternal return, it's important you know, to, to think that what we're doing today, our acts of designing things, it's very important on this for, let's say, milestone, that the order, it's not important. No, I think that it's a circle, and you need to have all these four questions all the time through the process. Cycling through, perfect. Well, I mean, if anyone's got any questions, please do seek Manuel out afterwards, uh, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Nick. That was Manuel Cervantes joining me on stage at Monocle's recent Quality of Life conference in Munich. Next up, a branding masterclass with Aurelia Rauch, creative director of Burgos. The Zurich-based executive is responsible for the branding, communications, marketing and advertising strategy of the Swiss Independent Bank. Aurelia joined Monocle's Rob Bound on stage, where she presented a slideshow of images. This included an artwork by Venetian Renaissance painter Titian and a billboard advertisement for New York-based Manhattan Mini Storage. These were followed by a Super Bowl-style ad for an Episcopalian church in Detroit and a campaign by Porsche which plays on the notion that men who drive fast cars aren't necessarily well-endowed. Rob begins by introducing Aurelia and asking about her background. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Aurelia Rausch. Um, she's creative director of uh, Burgos, which is a private Swiss bank. What on earth could we learn from the advertising strategy of a private Swiss bank, you might be asking? Maybe that's a question you've written down. Maybe that was the question that you had your hand up for. Um, we're going to be exploring that. We're going to be talking about brand, how you talk to the world, and how much you should listen to it. Where are we starting first? In an unusual place. So this doesn't look like an advert to me. No, I'm it's feeling not. choirs of angels. <laughs> well, Tell, talk to us about it. I think it might be useful to start at a place that I am utterly and entirely unqualified to do advertising in any way. I studied art history and theology. Yeah. And now yeah. I work for a bank. I have absolutely no financial background at all. And I do their branding and their advertising. I did not learn that. They'll I, have anyone. That's it. Okay. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> so the question really, I mean, for me, when you invited me to do this, and I obviously spent my days doing that now, was sort of what, what's the underlying qualification? And I, this really quickly came up for me because this is the first artwork that I admired and, and decided I want to do something that has to do with that. I was eight. This is in Venice. This is a painting by Titian. And it shows Mary being carried up into the heavens. 
And of course, it's not an app. But if you think about it, really, and this is why I wanted to talk about this, huh. advertising as we see it today, and as we've, I don't know, experienced it maybe since the 50s or something like that, the motivation behind it undoubtedly is that it wants you to change behavior. It wants you to aspire to something, want something. It creates this kind of craving or being like, I get this is what I want. And you really think about it, that it, this does exactly God the same. God does branding well. The church did branding well. The church well. does branding yeah, 100%. well. Yeah, 100%. I really think so. I mean, if you think about sort of motivating the masses and getting people to aspire to something, to really crave something, to change their entire behavior. The church did that extremely well. So, you know, you walk into something and you see it, and it's like such a delicious painting, and you're like, I, this is I, whatever it takes, I want that. I want to buy into I that. I want to buy that, yeah. And If I said amen to that at this point, would that seem crass? <laughs> okay, it, well, it probably would. So we start with Titian in We Venice. start with Titian, now a hard That, that hard starts left. the ball rolling, and then we go on to things that look a little bit... A little bit different, little, little, in a little bit of a different world. This is in New York, and this is from a company called Manhattan Mini Storage. And for a while, as you know, you know, if legalizing gay marriage is okay or whatnot, was a co topic of conversation in New York for a while. And during that time, they placed these ads, and I mean, you see how big they are. I picked this picture because you see the relationship really clearly. Huge billboards all over the city with this phrase, if you don't like gay marriage, then don't get gay married. And, yeah, brilliant. And I talked to somebody about this who, who worked at Manhattan Mini Search, why they decided to do this. And he said, well, you know, we're Manhattan Mini Storage. What we do is in our name. You don't need to ex explain this. And if you need storage or not, that's really, well, either your apartment's super crowded and you feel like you might need some storage or you don't. So I can also argue you into like needing this, right? So he said, well, we could also use our space for something good. And they made these statements. And they continue to be like very liberal with their statements and making, making them broadly. So I feel like there's sort of, you've got something, you can use it for something enriching or good. It's, it's a good that's a good direction. And there's something about the scale of, a, of an ad of that size, yeah. like a building-sized poster with, a, with such a amusing, contentious yeah. uh, slogan on it that does something that... Yeah. Putting it, maybe doing a kind of quarter-page ad. It's the also on their building. Not, maybe. It's, I think the, it's it there, was definitely on one of yeah. their buildings too. So, yeah, I can't really see. I don't, I'm not wearing my glasses, Rob. <laughs> Moving on. Oh, so, yeah. we have an, a recognizable typeface on the left-hand side. Where are we with this? This looks like a Super Bowl ad. Um, it's not. It's the Episcopalian Church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not kidding. Okay. So, this was my example of how... Basically, anybody can do good, amusing access, uh, advertising, sorry. And I just love this. 2,000 years later, Christiana's biggest competition is still the Lions. <laughs> I think it's so funny. <laughs> and it, of course, goes into this idea that the Lions, you know, football team, um, on Sundays. You That's know. quite a high concept ad for the average... Um, Isn't it? Possibly. Yeah. I don't know, yeah. for a Super Bowl weekend. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Porsche... They, unlike they some top work. car marks, they do advertise yeah. in, in print and, and, and in general media. Um, what, what, what are we looking at in the middle? And also, as we talk through this one, maybe you can give, us, give our, our audience a sense of how you use some of these tricks, dare I say, in your own creation. Absolutely. So I think we focus completely on text ads. We don't do any imagery. And I think it, it still has that magic, that text. You just hear your own voice in your head and it doesn't give you... I don't know, like sort of a dictation of a, of a spirit when you, 
you know, have an ad of somebody glazing into the future. You know, it sets a different scene. So we stay away from that. We also don't have a product like a car to sell, right? So I think the, the, the text still really works. We use a very bold typeface as well. And it just gets the message across in such an immediate way, right? And it resonates in a, in a way. So that's the route that we picked. I think especially the, uh, uh, yeah, and the really... I mean, small penis, have I got a car for you? I mean, of course you did that. It's it's just insane. And the one above This it, is like know. a kind of ad that you dream about and you think that no one would actually <laughs> but run. But isn't that true? Seven, this presumably was from the 1970s. It feels like a kind of... Yeah. I was wasted in the 70s. Yeah, but you that, know what? I really think so. I mean, also, the, you can't really legally do this anymore in advertising that you really compare to other brands. I know. But still, like, the sort of being a bit more out there and confrontational... Wouldn't you wish for that back? I would love bit? to have that back. Yeah. Maybe the, maybe maybe we've all changed. And what yeah. when you when you're doing when you're when you're coming up with your own campaigns when you're talking to your elders and betters at Bergos, mm-hmm. how much how much kind of to and fro do you have? How 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 blank is your canvas in Mine. order to be able to recreate the kind of vibe that we're seeing on the screen? Oh, now? this is really funny. So, <laughs> our CIO actually urged me to say uh, that we're politically neut- neutral. To which our CEO said, he would like me to say that I can do whatever I want, which is hilarious, right? And I, do, I don't think, of course, there's boundaries in a way, right? Like good taste in general. And we are a bank after all. But it's we're pretty free. Let's just say that. Okay. Yeah. That was Aurelia Roche, creative director of Burgos, in conversation with Monocle's Rob Bound. We'll be back in just a moment. Our final dispatch from the Monocle Quality of Life conference in Munich is a conversation with Merlin Uberter, co-founder of Microlino. The Swiss family-owned company is producing small electric vehicles designed to fit into tight urban spaces. Technically not even a car, the two-seater is like the love child of a motorbike and an automobile. Monocle's Europe editor, Ed Stocker, reported on the brand for Monocle's September issue and joined in on my chat with Merlin in Munich. I start the discourse with a little explainer on Merlin's family history. Tell me, I guess to start, we're, we're, we're talking about micromobility and, and this vehicle that's potentially changing, well, not potentially, it is already changing already, the way, yeah. way people move around the cities. But your family history in terms of, I guess, micromobility starts with your, your dad. He designed a product in 1999. I'm not sure if it was for you or, or if you were a little bit older at the time. You've, you've kind of got this face where I can't place your age. I can't tell if you're 16 and a, a boy prodigy or a very handsome 50-year-old. <laughs> I think I might be coming on to one of our, our speakers. It's very confusing, but oh, so, sorry, I, I digress. Your dad invented the micro scooter. Yeah, indeed. So, so The little three-wheeled scooter that if you've got a child, I'm sure, yeah, you're nodding, nodding away there. They're, they're kind of everywhere. But how, how do you go from that as a family business to designing this? Quite a big leap, right? Hugely. Yeah. That's what, that's what you're here for to unpack. Yeah, exactly. So as you mentioned, I mean, the, our company history is uh, completely different. So we're absolutely not from the automotive uh, industry. We are more from micromobility. And actually, I mean, micromobility is now super a buzzword. But my father, when he founded his company in 1999, he called his company Micromobility Systems. At that time, micromobility was nothing. So... He was, was, uh, he was referring to the people riding the scooters, not necessarily. The... Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he was way ahead of, uh, of uh, his time, I would say. 
But I mean, the connection to the car, obviously, it's a, it's a bit of a far leap, but it's still mobility, right? And everything started actually in 2015, actually out of a gag. It was a PR gag. We said like, okay, we have scooters, so there's not a lot to design, right? You have a T-bar and the deck, and yeah, that's it regarding design. So we wanted to show a bit how we see the future of mobility, and maybe with a product that we can design a bit more, have a bit more volume. And that's, let's say, when we uh, ventured into, let's say, checking some statistics about general mobility. And there was some kind of like breaking point when we saw that was a very interesting study that said, uh, on average, there are 1.2 people uh, per car driving a daily distance of uh, 30 kilometers a day. And also the average speeds in uh, urban areas is between 30 and 40 kilometers an hour. So incredibly inefficient in so terms incredibly of... Incredibly inefficient. And we said, okay, I mean... If you, if you look around, we realized the conventional car that you see on a daily basis is actually totally over-engineered. And the idea was, okay, how would a car need to look like to actually cater exactly for those everyday use cases? And you drew inspiration. This is a story that's in the, in the latest issue of Monocle. Our Ed Stocker, who's somewhere, actually reported this. I was a little bit, a little bit jealous he got to do it. But he trailed you for a day and you went to the designer's studios. Tell us, tell us about that taking form, how you actually conceptualise this vehicle and stripped away those inefficiencies. Yeah, so as we said before, it's actually not a car. So it's really a bit of hybrid uh, between a, a motorbike and a car. So it's also very lightweight, so space for two people, and it only weighs around 550 kg, which is like a third of standard electric car nowadays. So it's, in terms of sustainability, it cannot be uh, beaten, to be honest. And design-wise, we took inspiration uh, a bit from the past, actually. So we uh, looked at, okay, what has been developed already? There's Ed, sorry. Just exactly. Standing. And we took inspirations from the bubble cars of the 50s, which were, especially also in Germany, very popular after the Second World War because people didn't have money to buy a, a real car. So that was kind of like the alternative. And so we said, okay, I mean, this, the concept as is is very timeless, but they completely disappeared and we kind of like thought, okay, let's relaunch it and bring it back to uh, reality. I guess you, you've designed this entirely new sort of vehicle, but I'm, I'm also curious where, what role this can play in, I guess, changing our cities and, and changing the way that we might move around them. Because sure, it's, it's, it's well and good to have these, you know, people buying these and driving them, but you, you're also competing with other people driving far bigger vehicles on the road. What role can Microlino play in, I guess, a cultural shift as well? Yeah, I mean, honestly, of course, we are not completely revolutionizing mobility. I mean, it's, it's a small part of the puzzle, but we believe that, especially in urban areas, cars just need to get much, much lighter because it's a very easy physics example, right? Uh, if you, the more weight you carry, the more energy is being used. And I always bring the example to, to kind of like create an image is that our vehicle, including two passengers, battery, full trunk, weighs less than the battery of an electric SUV. So and I mean, this is just insane that nobody really thinks about it. I mean, everyone is talking about, wow, electric cars being the solution, etc. And yes, they are, but not if they're two and a half tons of weight, because that doesn't really make sense. We need to be much, much more efficient. And that's a bit, let's say, our mantra that we, that we try to enforce is that there's a much more efficient way to move around, especially in cities, and also space saving, right? I mean... The car is built so that you can actually cross park. So you can park three microlinos on one parking spot. 
So those are like little features where we say the car, in, in my opinion, a classic car in, um, in the city will become less important. And that's the role as it is. I mean, there are super examples in, in, in Paris, what we heard before with like uh, limited to 30 kilometers an hour. I mean, this is exactly what is perfect for a vehicle like this. Um, and I mean, we don't need those big SUVs to, to get from A to B to do five kilometers distance to get some, some groceries. I mean, that's time should be over. So you've got 150 prospective customers in here. Sell it to us more than, I, I understand the appeal in terms of like the efficiency of it, but what, what's the driving experience? Like, why would you want to get behind the wheel? And maybe just quickly, Ed Stocker has driven one. I'm giving you two minutes. Have a think about, you, you talk about your driving experience in two minutes, but Merlin, sell it to us. Yeah, honestly, I mean, it's a very small car, so it's like a bit of go-kart feeling that you have while driving. Obviously, you need to try it out. We actually have a second car out there, so the ones who are super curious, we can do a this small test drive to, as well. Yeah. But yeah, ultimately, it's, it's an electric car, so you have a lot of, uh, let's say, torque. And really, the crazy thing about it, and for sure, Ed, uh, agree with me on that, is that you just get so many looks on the streets because it's and, and positive looks, right? It's not like uh, in, you're driving in a 911 oh, I'm or into whatever. This. This it's a... like people look at you like, oh my God, this is, you're such a cool guy driving in the thing like that. You're crazy. And it's really, yeah, you get into so many discussions. Sometimes also a bit annoying when you just want to buy some groceries and you're stuck <laughs> in your context. Yeah, I'm actually just <laughs> running some errands or whatever. But it's, yeah, it's really fun to, fun to drive and cool experience. And it, it has a huge trunk space. I mean, we can really? check. Yeah, you, you fit in two big... Um, Bodies? Like sorry, luggage no, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> like, yeah, like luggage uh, pieces in there, plus two handbags. So almost... Uh, I mean, Ed, you're notoriously uncool. Did you feel cool driving around in it? Is that, is that an accurate reflection? I don't know. Can people hear me? Um, <laughs> It, well, it goes pretty fast, actually, as well. That's one thing you haven't said, because a lot of these tiny cars that you see on the streets in places like Milan, right, they go like 30, 40 kilometers an hour. This goes up to 90, and you feel, you feel like you're going quite fast. So I did feel quite cool, especially when people were like looking and smiling and wanting to engage in conversation. The only thing is you do definitely feel a bit of bumpiness on those Italian roads. Uh, yeah, they're horrible in touring now. Uh, yeah, exactly. But it's got some zip. That was Merlin Uberter co-founder of Microlino. My thanks as well to Ed Stocker, Monocle's Europe editor. You can read more about Microlino in the September issue of Monocle magazine. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans and edited by Christy O'Grady, Callum McLean and Sammy Susie. I'm Nick Manise and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>